Hi, everyone, and welcome to Academic Dean, where we connect with passionate college leaders who share their stories and viewpoints of higher education, especially lessons learned along the way. Now, here's your host, Dr. Dave Gurchak. Hi, everyone. Today, I'd like to welcome Dr. Kimberly Moffitt to our show. Dr. Moffitt is the Interim Dean for the College of Arts, Humanities, and Social Sciences at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County in Baltimore, Maryland. Kimberly, I'm so happy to have you on our show today. Thank you so much for the invitation. So can you tell me about your college and also why students select your institution? Sure. Um, so the College of Arts, Humanities, and Social Sciences is the largest college on campus. And by that, I mean that um, there are 26 academic departments or programs in the college. I also have six research centers, as well as four um, undergraduate scholars programs that are all housed under CAS. And um, so it makes it the largest in terms of just the bandwidth of what we are responsible for on campus, but then also in terms of the number of faculty as well as the number of students that uh, major in any of those 26 um, departments or programs really account for why we are seen as the largest college on campus. I would also say that um, in terms of UMBC and why folks come to UMBC, and then of course, we eventually try and attract them to um, COS is we are still seen very much as a mid-size university. So even though we are a public research university, we still have elements of our campus that feel very comfortable and easy to navigate. Um, it's very easy to become a part of a community and then learn all of all of the people who are affiliated with that community. And so there's a bit of a, you know, cheers aspect to UMBC where it feels good to arrive and show up and know that somebody's going to know your name. But I also think that um, the, the expansive liberal arts programs that we offer, which a lot reside in my college, really make it for an interesting opportunity for students to come and explore uh, their particular interests in terms of the academic side, but then also to explore who they are and what, what type of person they see themselves as and a citizen that they will be in post-graduation. So I think those are just some of the things that really appeal to individuals who seek out um, UMBC. We do largely draw from you know, a region instead of across the country. Even though we do have students coming from all 50 states, we also have students that are um, represent us um, internationally. And so we see ourselves as a very diverse campus. Um, representing so many countries around the world, certainly a, a number of um, students who are uh, second generation immigrants um, in, the, in, in the country, th that it really seems to draw um, that type of high performing academic student that still wants to have a traditional college experience that gives them the opportunity to learn more about themselves. Is there any programs that you would like to mention? And, and I know that's a hard thing for a dean because yes. every program is going to go, why didn't you mention mine? But <laughs> You put me on the spot and I can hear my colleagues saying, and what about? And that's what right. about? That's right. Um, but there are, um, so what I will tell you, and, and I think this is, this is fair, is in the college, it is very much uh, categorized by the departments that represent the arts, the visual and performing arts, those that represent the humani humanities disciplines, and then the social sciences. And so in terms of our arts departments, I would just briefly talk about, you know, the um, really dynamic music and theater programs that we offer students, again, you know, the opportunity to work so intimately with uh, faculty members who are performers themselves and to learn from them, I think really adds to the undergraduate experience overall. And the programs that they produce for us throughout the year, even in the midst of COVID, the opportunities that we've had to hear student recitals, to see um, um, orchestra performances. And even this later this week, I will be attending um, their final, uh, the theater department's final um, 
um, production of the year. So even in the midst of this time, they are still and have continuously been willing to perform their crafts. And I, I'm just really impressed by that. And I, I often tell my chairs from those departments that, you know, maybe in another life, I was an artist because I'm so smitten by them, even though in this life, there's not much of a creative bone in my body, but I'm really um, drawn to and attracted to the work that they're doing and how well they do it. Um, in the um, humanities departments, I would highlight some of those that I'm affiliated with. I started my career at UMBC in the American Studies Department. Uh, it has a special place in my heart because it is where I started when I arrived here, but it's also a special department because of the type of work it does, where it's constantly pushing students to grapple with the question, what is an American? Um, and that, of course, shows up in so many ways, and it um, adds for interesting conversation among students who come to UMBC already fixed and understanding who they are in the world, and that's it. And they leave saying, oh my goodness, I'm still questioning who I am, which, which means that American Studies was successful in what they were supposed to do, um, that they are able to convey um, an opportunity for students to question much of what they are encountering in their lived experience and trying to figure out how they want to show up in this world. Um, I also really am impressed by the amount, even for a small department like American Studies that only has five, maybe six faculty members, their um, um, community engaged scholarship is impressive and actually becomes one of the focal points from the university uh, as a department that we look to, to say, this is how community engaged scholarship um, should look like. This is how we should show up in the communities that we are linked to and connected to here in the greater Baltimore um, region and being able to learn from them, again, even though it's a, a very few individuals in that department, learning from them how to do it and do it right so that we are seen as partners in our community and not seen as interlopers, not seen as individuals who are swooping in with all the expertise and just simply want to impart that knowledge on our communities. Um, and then I would say in the social sciences, my largest department on campus is psychology. Um, and, you know, for various reasons, psychology attracts a number of undergraduate students who want to understand the mind and how the human mind works and how we, you know, the behaviors that we carry out in a day-to-day -day basis. Why do we do what we do? And um, that department has thrived over the years in drawing more and more students to the point that we can't necessarily keep up with um, the demand, but we certainly try to while also, again, still giving them that intimate experience of being connected to their faculty um, and being able, even in an undergraduate experience, able to carry out research projects, which I think is what really adds to the UMBC experience is so many of our students are able to graduate saying, I worked on X research project with this professor. And so for those who then of course decide to go into graduate school, it's a perfect stepping stone for what's to come for them. So those are just a few that I would highlight. Okay. Well, and like I said, I, please tell them I put you on the spot. You were not, <laughs> I get it. I understand how that feels. Um, what's new at UMBC? Anything on, and also is there anything on the horizon coming up? What's new? Um, so when I thought about this, um, I kept thinking about the only thing new seems to be everything COVID that you know so much of our energy and time has spent been spent on what processes need to be put in place to make sure health and safety is our primary concern while also ensuring that we were able to mount our curriculum and still teach our students successfully. Uh, this academic year, UMBC stayed at around 90% um, virtual and only 10% of its courses were um, in person on campus. Many of those were in our college. And, and again, referencing the visual and performing arts as examples, as well as the emergency health services department that is in my college, because you know, trying to train paramedics virtually is virtually impossible. And it was necessary to have people in person, of course, 
safe and socially distanced and masked and taking all of the health precautions that were necessary, but still needing to be in person in order to learn the skills that were necessary in order for them to take care of others and save lives. I will add, which I think is tangentially related, while we've been away, it's going to be exciting to see folks return in the fall where our, our recreational ac activity center or what students refer to as the rack, as well as our counseling center have all been renovated. And um, they'll see new spaces that were not there when they left in March, 2020. And I think it's, it's kind of um, serendipitous that it happened like that because when I think about some of the things that we are going to be in need of returning to campus full-time in the fall, I can't think of two places in particular that are not more important. Those areas in which we need to take care of ourselves, right? Thinking about self-care, thinking about support for everyone who has experienced this public health crisis in a multitude of ways and making sure that we have spaces on our campus that are inviting to them, but are also designed to support them and help them maneuver through all that they've had to deal with over the last year. So I'm really excited to see how students, faculty and staff respond to these new spaces because they look very different than when they left in March, 2020. Um, can you talk a little bit about yourself and how you became the interim dean at UMBC? So um, asking an academic to talk about themselves, that's always a dangerous question. <laughs> yes. Bring out the tenure <laughs> book and just start quoting it. <laughs> um, um, but what I will say to you is I've been at UMBC for 14 years. And um, again, I think I shared earlier that I started my career at UMBC in the American Studies Department as an assistant professor and um, eventually gravitated over to my current department, which is language literacy and culture. That is an interdisciplinary PhD only program on campus. Mm -hmm. um, I really had aspirations for doing more and contributing more and mentoring uh, graduate students and those who are interested in the professoriate as a career moving forward and wanted to be at the hub of doing that work um, for graduate students. And so for the last five years, I've been I've been in the language literacy and culture PhD program. Um, aside from that, what I would say in terms of some of um, what I am as a scholar is I am a communication and media studies scholar. I study um, mostly representations of African-Americans in uh, media. And that shows up in various forms. Um, one form is I do a lot of research on black hair and how it's politicized in our society. I also do work on colorism, the whole notion of there being this skin hue privilege um, that shows up mostly in, in communities of color and lighter complected individuals seem to have more privilege in our society than those of darker hues. Um, and then I also do, which is probably what I get a lot more attention for, is my research on Disney, um, because I love to critique Disney. <laughs> and Disney makes it very easy for me to critique. <laughs> and so I do, um, I generally do work on their television programming, as well as their princess films. Um, as a critique on what it says about gender, but then also what it says about race. Um, so those are the primary areas I've spent much of my career in. Um, I, in addition to that, you know, I had the opportunity to serve as faculty senate president at UMBC for two years. That is probably where the uh, administration bug bit me. Uh, having the opportunity to really get a lay of the land of the campus and how it 
have functioned at that kind of 10,000 foot level um, gave me the opportunity to uh, really look in directions and say where I wanted to see myself show up and what contributions could I make at the campus. Um, so after I served in that role for two years, I then had the opportunity to chair or direct the uh, language literacy and culture PhD program. I did that for two years as well. And then this past summer, I had the opportunity to uh, be appointed as interim dean. Phew, yes. <laughs> I told you don't ask <laughs> academics that question. <laughs> so what's been some of the biggest lessons learned so far as interim dean? And what's it like transitioning from a faculty member into administration? Ah, uh, great question. Because this pops up for me quite a bit um, because it's so recent for me, right? Um, it's been, you know, just... 10 months that I, you know, when I look out on, I, twice a month, I meet with the chairs and directors of, of my college. And now that we're still virtual, I'm looking out onto the screen at all of these squares at my colleagues. And I think this time last year, I was on that side. You know, I was one of those individuals. So I think in some ways that's a good thing because I can relate. And I remember, I'm not so far removed that I've forgotten what it was like to be a faculty member or what it was like to be the leader of a department or program. So I think that works in my favor that um, those memories are quite pronounced to me. And I have to tell you, I loved being the chair or director of a um, program, especially over a PhD only program. And as an academic, I saw it as the ideal spot. I could have stayed in that spot for years. Um, it's only because I really believe that there were other contributions I could make to the university. And I knew that we needed someone during this particular time in the midst of a pandemic that was going to be um, a level hand, a steady hand, and someone who also could exhibit um, compassion to understand what faculty must be enduring during this time. And, and I felt like I was someone who could do that. But I would also share that it does not escape me that um, I'm now sitting at the table as one of the decision makers on our campus in a much larger way than I was when I was serving as chair. Um, and although that feels like a, a, a heavy load to carry sometimes, it's also a load that invigorates me. Like I'm excited by it. Like what other opportunity will I have to make decisions? And what other spaces can I create as a, re as a result of being one of those decision makers? That this isn't me always having to go to someone and say, I'd like to do X, is it possible? Now it's, I have envision doing X, who are the people I'm going to pull to that table to make it happen? And I think that is a um, exciting spot to be in, especially right now during this difficult period for us, um, because it allows me to be more creative. But I'm also excited about it because it gives me, um, in a very candid way, as a Black woman, the first Black woman to serve in this role um, at UMBC, the opportunity to add a new lens and perspective to the way in which we have um, run the organization, run our university. Um, and I'm excited by that um, opportunity. Um, I have also learned, just to share a few others, um, I have also learned that administrators love to meet, and I'm not sure I'm one of those that loves to meet. <laughs> um, I have really um, had to adjust because I like meeting to take care of business, but I don't like to meet to meet. And um, there's a lot of that because administrators were always processing information. So we come together and we process together. So not necessarily within that hour or even that 90 minutes that you're together, are you leaving out with um, you know, nicely buttoned up decisions being made. Instead, sometimes it's a continuation that goes for a few weeks and sometimes even months before we are getting to the point of making decisions. And that is always um, a challenge for me, um, honestly. Um, I can also share that I think 
change is hard. And, and I don't think that's something unique to UMBC or my college or my colleagues, but I do think, you know, my predecessor in this role, who I really liked as a dean, served at UMBC for seven years in that role. And um, after he decided to step down for another opportunity at an academic or professional um, association, what it meant is that there was going to be change and I'm not sure everyone was ready for it. We knew it had to come, but not all of us were ready for it. And I think that shift of recognizing that Kimberly is someone we know, but she leads differently, or we didn't know how she led, um, is a new experience for um, all stakeholders, all of my colleagues, and, and me included. And I think that part is, is not as easy as people make it sound in terms of adjusting. And then I just want to mention one last thing, because I was in a meeting recently, um, and I was asked a similar question. And, um, you know, everyone that was on this panel were administrators, and they were asking, you know, the question about, talk to us about what it's like. And all of the responses were, you know, exciting about how, how much we got to enjoy being um, an administrator. And there was very little that we seemed willing to be able to talk about in terms of the pitfalls. And I'll just talk about one because it's real for me. And um, I would call that the loneliness of being a dean, um, especially being a dean at a university that you have called your home for the last 14 years because that means I have established relationships with colleagues. I've got connections with, um, with them as well. I may even do activities with them outside of work or our children are brought together to do something together. And then it almost, it seemed as though the shift moving into this role meant that the dynamics of those relationships also had to shift and change. Um, and I struggle with that loneliness. I, I remember saying recently that yeah, I would arrive to campus and, and parked in the same parking lot as our dean. And um, when I would see him get out of his car, I would walk slower because I was like, I don't want to have to engage the dean. I don't want to talk to him right now. I don't know what he's going to ask me about. And I thought this coming fall, I'm going to be that person. <laughs> I'm going to get out of my car and they're going to be people walking slowly not to have to engage the dean. Um, and I am too much of an extrovert to um, have that experience, but I know it's a part of my reality that it is a bit lonely um, in being able to do this work, but it's for the betterment of the university. And so that's why I continue doing so. <laughs> you, you know, I love both. There, there was a couple answers that, I was so excited that you, you were honest about. First, the meetings. Yes. I, <laughs> I remember stepping in, even as an associate dean, and then moving into a dean, it was like, that's all I seem to do. I, I want to do <laughs> stuff, but I can't because I'm stuck in a meeting. That's right. That's the, right. The second thing is, and you talked about loneliness. Um, I remember the administrators when I first stepped in out of faculty, and they all said, what kind of, it was like a Star Wars analogy. Welcome to the dark side. And I thought, yeah. no, no, yeah. I'm, I still saw myself as <laughs> I'm, I understand faculty. I've been faculty for X amount of years. And it's like, oh, oh, no, 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 no. It, it's going to be different no matter how much you try. And, and there, you're right. There is a little bit of loneliness, you know, even the lunch, all that stuff. Uh, most people don't recognize that until they step into it and it kind of rolls them back on their heels. That's so, right. Well, and I mean, some of it is the nature of the job, right. right? That now that you are the decision maker, there are certain conversations that you can't have that you may have had previously, that I may have stayed in the parking lot and conversed with my colleagues and talked about what was happening on campus and what was happening in our different departments. I don't have that luxury at this point because I am Dean of all of those departments and I've got to keep that perspective so that it doesn't appear that I'm privileging any, but that I remain as the cheerleader and advocate for all of them. So then what recommend, uh, I'm sorry, what recommendations would you have for faculty wanting to make a transition? What, what, what little bit of tidbits can you pass on to them? I mean, I think they definitely have to be prepared for it. And, and some of that preparation comes from your mentorship, to be honest. Uh, I still, 
I, some of my uh, closest mentors are ones from graduate school. I, I had the opportunity to be the graduate assistant for the grad dean at my um, PhD granting institution. And I still talk to him 20 years later, um, asking questions or texting and saying, I have this situation, what do you think? Or am I approaching it the right way? Can you give me a, another perspective so that I um, am looking at the picture fully instead of just from my perspective? Um, so I think it's important to make sure you keep those mentors surrounding you because it keeps you grounded, but it also keeps you honest so that you can hear, especially those who are willing to tell you um, the truth instead of those who are just wanting to pat you on your back. And I've surrounded myself with some pretty good mentors who have done that for me. Um, and I think that is key to being able to um, do this work. I would also say finding those small steps that you want to make. Um, I was not willing to, I never envisioned jumping from chair to dean. Um, it just wasn't on my trajectory, but the opportunity afforded itself. So I did make that move because of the contributions I felt like I could make. But I would say looking for any opportunities that give you the chance to lead and be able to demonstrate your capabilities of guiding others or supporting others is so key to thinking about moving in these directions. So those are the two that stand out to me of what I tried to do. Okay, excellent suggestions. Um, as someone who has served as both Senate president and college dean, tell me your view on shared governance and what can be done to enhance this unique organizational structure. Okay, I love shared governance. Um, I loved it when I was serving as faculty Senate president. And again, I think because of my experience with shared governance, that's what that's when the administrative bug bit me because I had access to so many um, uh, aspects of the campus community that I had never seen before, that I never understood before. And I think it's interesting when I think about other things that, that um, uh, colleagues may be interested, who are interested in moving into leadership should do, is if there is some type of leadership development program that gives you that level of access, mm -hmm. do it because it shifts completely how you think about the university. Because when we're in our little silo of our department, we think we know about the university, but all we know is that little corner of the campus of how we are operating and functioning. But if you again are able to have the chance to pull up to that 10,000 foot view, you see so much more of the campus and you start to make the linkages of how a campus operates that doesn't look anything like what's happening in your little unit um, on that side of campus. Uh, so I love shared governance. At the same time, I also lack patience. <laughs> And if you know anything about shared governance, <laughs> you must have patience <laughs> um, because it can be a journey. It is not seen as something that a decision, an idea comes to the floor and you say, yes, let's move forward and make it happen. It's a much longer journey than that because you are so committed in shared governance to hearing the voices of your stakeholders that that takes time. And so th this is no quick fix. These are the moments where you have to be in it for the long haul and willing to carry out that journey of hearing all of these varied perspectives to ensure that the decisions that you're gonna make, even if it's not the ones that everyone wants, it is decision that is, has been informed by all of those voices that were at the table. I think that's the biggest part for me is that you want to, and I, I, I think I do that as a leader. Um, you know, currently I'm doing a series of listening sessions. I'm calling them listening sessions in the college because now that the decision has been made, we're returning to campus about, you know, uh, I think it's 85% um, returning back to campus that um, we know that there's a lot of anxiety. There's a lot of concern. There's a lot of frustration around what that looks like because we have been away from campus 
campus for over a year. And so the listening sessions I'm holding is to get an opportunity to hear all of these voices, whether it's faculty, staff, or students. What are they saying? What are they thinking? giving them the opportunity, even if they don't want to attend the virtual um, listening session to be able to uh, post their anonymous questions or comments about what they're feeling so that I can at least take into consideration all of those perspectives before I then make a decision. Now, is the whatever the decision I have to make going to please everyone? Absolutely not. But I've heard all of the voices and that's helped me inform the decision that I am going to make. And that's the piece that I think is most important about shared governance, um, at least for me. Um, I think that's what it should be about. And, you know, I've heard from other colleagues, shared governance, you know, shows up and looks different at various campuses. UMBC within the University System of Maryland gets touted as the exemplar around um, shared governance. Um, because again, we do the long haul of making sure that we have heard the voices of our stakeholders before we move. Um, and it means that we move slower. I mean, when you look at the other universities in the state, it looks like we're moving a little slower than um, some, but a lot of it has to do with just ensuring that we have heard voices from our professional staff, our, you know, um, our um, non-exempt staff, whether it is, you know, the different student, student government um, associations, as well as our faculty senate. So there's so many voices that we need to hear from before we make moves. Um, and again, that's where the patience comes in because it's necessary. <laughs> I mean, it's very frustrating at times yeah. Um, yeah. for someone that, that lacks patience when I think there's a good idea and it's the right thing to do. We just need to move. And the reality is you can't move if you're committed to shared governance. Yeah. You and I are a lot alike. I, I've said almost those exact words. Do, <laughs> does UMBC have a, a, a workshop or anything for new senators? How do they prepare them to sit on the Senate? No, oh. we do a bit of an orientation to okay. give them a sense of, you know, this is how the process works. And then we also share out, um, you know, our uh, bylaws to make sure people know how the process works. But some of it is very much just the living of the yeah. experience, right, to understand yeah. it. Um, I think that's how I came to um, understand it. I was serving as my department senator. I was asked to be the vice president for a faculty senate. And then I moved into being um, president and all of those stages, I think it had more to do with just experiencing it than it being expressed or written somewhere for mm -hmm. me. But yes, there is a moment where we talk about this is how the process works. This is what we do. But again, I think a lot of it comes from just um, seeing it expressed. Uh, what suggestions do you have to improve diversity and inclusion on college campuses and throughout the communities they serve? Um, so I think I want to say something else about shared governance. And, oh, and I'm I, sorry. I, no, 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 no. Because it I think it ties nicely with this. And the, the piece that I wanted to say is for me, why shared governance is so valuable, and this might be just a personal perspective, is because it really starts to diminish these strict hierarchical approaches to leadership. You know, like when I'm talking, I, I did have a colleague say to me recently, because um, I refer to I refer to my faculty as my colleagues all the time. And, and the person said, but you do know they're not your colleagues, right? Because they report to you. And I said, yes, but... I utilize them to help make decisions for the college. So for me, that's a colleague. If it was very top down where it was simply me making the decisions and you just have to live with it, that would make sense. But the fact that I am hearing their voices and listening to their suggestions and incorporating that into the decisions that I'm making, that to me means that we are partners in this work together. So we are colleagues, not this very strict hierarchical structure. And I think I like that piece because I want us to have the common goals of working together to educate our students, 
while also having the chance for, you know, uh, faculty to pursue, pursue our research and our um, professional aspirations. So yes, I'm the one who has to certainly own the decisions, whether they're good or they're bad. But I also know that at least those decisions I've made have a consideration of so many people at the table. Um, and that's the type of environment that I want to work in. And, and I think that ties nicely to the question, David, that you're asking about um, DEI issues on college campuses, is that for me, um, there is so much more that college campuses need to be doing around listening around these issues. And what do I mean by that? I'm, I'm saying that, um, that we need to learn more about the needs of our campuses and our surrounding communities that we're situated in before we take any action. And what I've noticed, um, certainly from this seat now as an interim dean, but even before as a faculty member interested in these issues, is that oftentimes there are so many knee-jerk reactions that we are taking. and for me, um, on the receiving end of those knee-jerk reactions, they've fallen on deaf ears. Um, and, in and at times it's felt disingenuous. And what I would say is that it's so important to know your community to be able to alleviate or avoid some of that. Um, so I'll give a quick example um, because I just recently dealt with this. Um, you know, the Derek Chauvin, um, uh, verdict was just recently announced last week, right? And we, um, we saw, uh, I mean, certainly all of my professional associations that I'm affiliated with came out with their statements. And, um, you know, I heard about some of my departments doing the same thing um, for, for their communities, um, department communities. And I did get asked, why am I not saying anything um, from the college perspective? So part of it is personal that I've made a conscious decision that um, I think it's important to know the final outcome of a decision like this. We have a verdict that says someone has been found guilty, but we don't have a sense of what the consequences of his guilt is. And I'm interested mostly in that before I take a stand and say anything. But the other piece of that for me is the statement is a statement. And it has a series of words on a page, but what's it now doing? Um, for some people, it seems to make them feel better because that organization has said something. So they've been heard or they are seen. And I think that part is important. But for me, in addition to just given the perception that I'm on the right side of social justice, I think it's important that there's some type of action that takes place afterwards. And so I'm not interested in just saying, here are a few words to make sure you know that I do believe this is right or wrong. I'm more interested in, here are my concerns and here's what we're going to do about them. And unless I've got the actions already in place in which I want to carry out and do, I'm unwilling to share just a few words on a page. Um, and I think that's for me a concern about some of the work that we're doing around DEI now is that we are looking for the quick fixes. And this has been a 400 year issue in our country. So how are we intending or expecting to be able to fix it just within a, a given year because we've been in the midst of a pandemic? What I would say is that pandemic has forced us to have to deal with some of those issues and has given us a valuable moment in time to do exactly what I said, to stop and pause and do some listening. And then after listening, start deciding what actions do we need to take? So um, another point that I'll share quickly is I, I um, brought on a colleague to serve as a special assistant for me for the next academic year. And it's specifically around wanting her to create a, what I'm referring to as a looking in the mirror series. That is not my, you know, crafty or creative um, spirit or energy at the table. It actually is the, the title of one of the chapters of Freeman Rabowski's book that he um, shared with the campus uh, last year called The Empowered University. And in that particular chapter stood out the most to me because 
It was asking us to stop looking outside of ourselves and talking about what society is doing or what this political party is doing or what this group of people are doing and what this country is doing and to turn the mirror on ourselves and start to have a conversation about what we are doing or not doing to make our campuses better. And so bringing this uh, colleague on is really one of my action steps to say, I want to grapple with the, the diversity, equity, and inclusion issues on our campus, which I think we do a good job of, but there's always more to do. And I want to utilize this moment in time and the expertise of this colleague to be able to help guide us through some of those conversations, difficult conversations about the roles that we have all played in not living up to the ideals around DEI. But now we have a moment and opportunity to do so. Because as I keep telling my colleagues, I do not want to return to UMBC in fall 2021 the same way or it looked like the same campus that I left in March 2020. If it is, we didn't learn a thing about this pandemic and this time away from campus. So there should be lessons learned. And the only way for us to learn those lessons is the first listen. That's great. I, you know, I'm asking more and more uh, leaders now about diversity, equity, and inclusion. And it's, and it's interesting that continues to get more and more soundbite. In other words, they're more and more willing to stay, just like you, more and more willing to stay uh, on the show and talk more about that because yeah. they realize the importance of it. I've, but you're right. If if it's fall 2021 and nothing changes, then what the <laughs> heck was this past year about? That's yeah, right. That's, that's right. an excellent the point. Wasted, and it's, it's similar to what I tell um, my undergrads, that if you come here as a freshman and by the time you graduate, you're still the same person. Like you just wasted four years of your time yeah. <laughs> and your parents wasted a lot of money. A lot of money, yeah. <laughs> there should be a marked difference between yeah. those two time periods. There yeah. should be a pre-pandemic and a post-pandemic era. And yeah. they need to look different from each other because there are lessons that we learned in the process. So when I look at the UMBC news, this must be from when you first became the interim dean back in August. Does that sound about right? That there is a printer that says, as a media scholar and critic, Moffitt's work centers on topics that encompasses ideas of citizenship, identity, representation, and belonging in society. Uh, Moffat also extends her expertise into the Baltimore community by facilitating workshops on diversity and inclusion I, I'm interested in those workshops too, because it seems like you're stepping off campus to, to help to help the Baltimore community. So can you talk a little bit about those workshops? What are you taking out to the community right now? So I will tell you that, um, so I'm often asked to come and give talks um, on this topic, but the workshops that I do are actually in K-12 settings. Oh, really? Um, okay. Yes. Okay. And, and my goal in doing that is to have um, conversations around identity and race in particular um, that allow students to explore those issues at a much younger age, to understand how they're showing up in society instead of having to wait until some magical moment as an adult that they start grappling with those issues. Um, so I don't know if the focal, focal point would be so much on diversity per se, except for them to understand the diversity of identities and the diversity of their own identity and how they need to um, feel affirmed in showing up in those community and, and showing up in the community um, as a teenager, but then also as an adult. And I typically do this with middle schoolers and high schoolers. Um, and part of it's interesting. Part of the reason that I do that is, first of all, I have two teenagers of my own um, and, you know, navigating this world of social media with them you know, they are exposed to quite a bit. And, and I would say oversaturated and, 
you know, inundated with so many messages around identity and, and how they should feel about themselves and show up. And I think it's, I think every, all teenagers have had this right over the generations. It's, that part isn't new, but I think the social media piece is what's new um, for this generation. And so my goal is really to have those conversations with our teenagers sooner rather than later so that we're not doing the work to repair the adult that we are actually reaffirming them in their adult years instead of trying to um, so-called fix them or address some of the concerns that they had or traumas that they experienced when they were younger um, individuals. That's my big piece. I will add to that, one of the um, particular workshops that I do a lot is for African-American girls who are in middle school and we focus on uh, colorism. Uh, again, that whole skin hue privilege piece, because it shows up, and I know it's not a reality for all, but it shows up in such a prominent way that really impacts um, self-esteem and self-worth well into adult years. I, I published a piece right before I um, uh, was appointed dean, and um, it was a piece, it was an autoethnography of, of colorism for in a mother-daughter relationship, which is my own mother-daughter relationship. And um, my daughter is a, a darker skin hue than I, and we've had these conversations over the years of how she seems to show up very differently than I. The title of the piece is um, light-skinned people always win. And that was a quote from her that she said, it always seems like you win, mommy, because of your skin hue, that light-skinned people always win. And that stood out to me. That was the voice of a 14-year-old girl wow. who said that. And I thought, we really need to grapple with this issue. And it was her who then said, you need to be doing these types of workshops with middle school girls now. Don't wait until they get to college and they're sitting in your classroom because then you're trying to you know, tell them, forget all that stuff you heard when you were a child. She was like, we need to hear it now, mommy. And I thought, she's right. And that's how I started doing some of those workshops. Wow, great story. So here's my last question. If you had some extra budget money today, Ooh. how would you spend it? Ah, <laughs> oh, that's a lovely question. <laughs> but then you have to decide, like, where am I putting it? Um, there are so I I I want to think about it in terms of faculty, staff, and students on campus um, is what I would say. And so, first, in terms of for students, I would see this as um, wanting to utilize money around college access and affordability. You know, the more scholarships or support that we can extend to folks so that it makes college more accessible and affordable to them. Um, I think about, you know, there is a very small percentage of the students that are in Baltimore City Schools that actually make it to UMBC. Um, we talk about some of it being um, very much around the standards that UMBC has in terms of the GPA as well as the standardized test scores. Um, but there's another piece to it as well in terms of seeing it as a place that is welcoming and inviting to those students as well as affordability. And so for me, I would love to you know, know that I've got this little kitty of money that you know the students who want to be at UMBC and seemingly can thrive at UMBC aren't hindered by um, finances as an issue. Um, and I mean it to the point of not just being able to come to the campus and take classes, but I mean coming to the campus and being a part of the campus, living on campus, because that's the college experience for students to have. Um, and that's where you get to learn more about who you are as an individual, because now you're not with mom and dad or your other you know, guardians. You are on your own trying to figure it out. Um, and I think that's the growth process that takes place. And so especially for students that want to be at UMBC, but know that they can just take classes, I would love to have that kitty to be able to say, and here's the money for your room and board. 
Um, I would also love, and I know some universities already do this, you know, uh, Goucher College here in Baltimore, but Elon University in North Carolina, which is where I'm originally from, that um, they are two campuses that have an expectation and, and, and require students to do study abroad. Um, I would love to take away the financial barrier that precludes students being able to study abroad because I think it's such an important aspect of, um, again, learning about self and the rest of the world is being able to see the world from you know, some, other, some other perspective just by simply getting on a plane and being in another part of the world for a period of time and how it just opens up your world and you start to see things differently. You start to hear news differently, you start to, understand those people that you are living with differently. Um, and UMBC has a very small population of its students that actually study abroad. And again, thinking about my college and the kind of work that we do in the arts, humanities, humanities and social sciences, we are the hub where that should be happening. <laughs> and I would love the opportunity to um, see so many more students be able to study abroad. And of course, you know, I'm an academic, so I would say um, increasing research funding for my, for my faculty. This is a lot easier conversation um, in, you know, our College of Engineering and Information Technology, and certainly in the natural mathematical sciences, you know, the money seems to just flow <laughs> in ways that it does not <laughs> in the arts, humanities, and social sciences, but I would love my uh, faculty to know that I support their efforts and I know how important us understanding and learning as much as possible that we can about the human experience is that I would um, love to have more money to shower them with and say, yes, go do that project. Let Give me more information about what it means that I'm living in this a day and time and how I navigated through COVID and how, you know, mental health became a much bigger issue post pandemic because I would love to see more opportunities to um, uh, support research in that regard. And then a very small one, I think, um, well, it may not be small to the, my staff, but certainly um, it, it um, is not seen as grandiose as the others that I'm talking about, is making sure that we've got um, income parity for our administrative assistants. You know, they do so much. Um, UMBC would not have been able to thrive and succeed during this pandemic without our administrative assistance. It's just no way possible. No excellent, excellent shout out to admin assistants. I think, yes, I think every dean's going, gosh, I wish I would have answered that at least once. <laughs> yes, because they really have kept almost all the colleges and universities. Absolutely. Flowing. I mean, yeah. It, yeah. it wasn't me. <laughs> it, was, it was my assistants who made sure that I did X, yeah. Y, and Z um, and said, did you remember to do? Um, and certainly keeping the trains running in our academic departments. Um, and I would love to acknowledge them for that piece, but also just recognize that when we talk about the monies that are spent on salaries on college campuses, they're not spent there, but I would love to see and know that it could be there. Yeah. Well, that's, a, that's excellent to end this conversation. Um, Kimberly, thanks for being on the show today. I really enjoyed talking with you. No problem. Thank you so much for the invitation. Well, that wraps it up. Thanks everyone for listening. Thanks for listening to today's episode and make sure to visit our website at academicdean.com for additional information. Also, if you enjoy our podcast, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Until next time.